Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, brought to you by Canon Plus. This week's episode is a talk from Dr. Vern Poitras on biblical interpretation. This is one of several lectures by Dr. Poitras just added to Canon Plus, including talks on preaching, physics, inerrancy, and more. So if you enjoy this episode, be sure to check out those other talks available now. Well, good morning. It's 1010 by my watch, so uh, let's proceed. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would um, be a blessing to us in all the uh, time we're here at the conference, but uh, also be our guide and illuminator as we're considering this passage in Luke and how we go about understanding your word more deeply. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. What happens when we interpret a story in the Bible, such as the story of the healing of the leper in Luke 5, 12 to 16? We focus on the story and the details of its contents, but this focus has a larger background. We probably know already about other stories of healing in the Gospels and in Acts. We also perform our reading against the background uh, of our of knowing something about stories in general. Let us reflect explicitly about the relation of one story, Luke 5, 12 to 16, to other stories. This one story can serve as an example of what we do or ought to do in interpreting any story in the Bible. The general principle with which we are concerned is the principle of context. Context influences interpretation, and contexts are of many kinds. Luke 5, 12 and following has a narrower literary context consisting in the narratives that come before and after Luke 5, 12 to 16, the catch of fish at the beginning of Luke 5, the more general summary of Jesus' early ministry in Luke 4, 42 to 44, the healing of Simon's mother-in-law in Luke 4. The healing of Simon's mother-in-law, the healing of the paralytic in, uh, after our story, and so on. These stories compose part of the Lucan narrative of the early period, period of Jesus' public ministry. They fit into a still larger circle of Jesus' entire public ministry, and that circle fits in turn in the larger circle of Jesus' entire life as narrated by Luke. We can also consider Luke within the context of Luke-Acts and within the larger New Testament canon. We can consider the thematic context consisting of all the instances of healing in the New Testament. We also have the cultural context of the Roman Empire and of Palestine, historical context of political, social, religious, economic developments, so on. At a very general level, explicit studies in cognitive psychology, cognitive linguistics, and the sociology of knowledge confirm what thoughtful observers have known intuitively for a long time, namely that our interpretation of a particular experience is shaped by context, including the context of previous knowledge. Moreover, the broader assumptions coming from culture and from worldviews influence how we interpret any particular item of information or experience. So what assumptions come into play when we read Luke 5, 12 to 16 or another story in the Gospels? Some people find an anchor for their interpretive practice 
primarily within a broader historical framework. Their thinking about history offers an implicit or explicit worldview. Any story, such as the healing of the leper, gets evaluated within this historical framework. We ask about the events that happened, what led to the telling of the story, who told it, and so on. But what is our view of history? Is it the working out of God's plan, or is it merely imminent process thrown up by a combination of chance and mechanical causation and human will. So I'm saying, in effect, that's going to be the part of the assumptions that you bring when you read this uh, one story. The plurality of worldviews makes us aware that there is no one obvious standpoint that claims everyone's allegiance. Other people take their standpoint within sociology and anthropology, uh, and uh, I won't go into that uh, very much, but uh, then you have the framework of whatever sociological theory that you're working with, with. Still, other people take their stand within literary theory and the tradition of literary interpretation. But which literary theory and which tradition of interpretation? That's closer to what I want to address here. The complete canon of scripture offers us a special context that needs attention. People who take their stand within general history might be uneasy about the canon, except to the degree that they are able to treat canon as merely an imminent historical and social product of ecclesiastical decision making. I'm thinking more of secular historians at this point. Um, but I believe the books of the canon were breathed out by God, 2 Timothy 3.16. They were therefore the word of God even before the time when the church recognized them. They belonged together as books with a common divine author and a common absolute authority. We can still pay attention to the context of other ancient writings. These two are under God's providential superintendence, but only the canonical writings have their distinct authority. So it is right that we treat... Uh, this one story in the context of the canon and that we give distinct reflection to that context. Then uh, Luke 5 fits into the working out of the redemptive plan of God. It is a story of deliverance, in this case, a deliverance from the disease of leprosy. As a story of healing, it resonates with all the other stories of healing, particularly in the Gospels. More broadly, it has an affinity with stories of deliverance of other kinds through the canon. God gives us one central story of redemption in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. He also gives us many, many stories of many redemptions, which are types or shadows of the one central story. The many stories and the central story are organically related. One plan of God, in effect. How can God be merciful to sinners or to this leper? Ultimately, only through Christ. Christ was merciful to the leper, even though he did not merit mercy. Any instance of deliverance, whether in the Exodus or in the wars with Sihon and Og or at Jericho or in David and Goliath or in Hezekiah's Jerusalem, is an instance of undeserved mercy. Undeserved mercy comes for the sake of Christ. Christ is, quote, the one mediator, 1 Timothy 2.5. Temporary mediatorial figures like Noah, Moses, David, and Hezekiah obtain God's mercy only because they are founded on Christ's ultimate mediation. The affinity between the stories is not something invented by literary cleverness, but is an inherent in the unity of God's plan. So I'm saying there's a unity in the 
in the events, even before there's a unity in the stories about the events, right? It's a both and, and that's an uh, important thing to, to uh, keep in mind. Uh, the, it's inherent in the unity of God's plan and the constancy of God's character as a God of holiness, mercy, and justice, Exodus 34, 6, and 7. Uh, the special role of canon, which I've emphasized to this point, uh, does not eliminate a role for general knowledge. Our general knowledge ultimately derives from God's general revelation and is under his providential superintendence. We are creatures made in the image of God, and as creatures, God intended that we should hear his special word in Scripture in the context of general knowledge. We grew up, we learned language, and we heard stories. Mostly without thinking about it, we develop skill in understanding and interpreting stories. Now, this is the thing that, that sociology and anthropology and so on and literary studies as a whole pick up on. Every story that we have heard has had a role to play. When we read the story of the leper in Luke 5, we read it using the skills that we have developed from many extra-biblical stories. Stories of deliverance include not only the special redemptive deliverances recorded in the Bible, but everyday stories. Knights rescue damsels in distress. The hero slays the dragon. People get healed, either through medicine or by God's healing even without medicine. People's spiritual ills are comforted by God's word. Lost hikers are rescued. See, there are all these deliverance uh, instances is what I'm saying. Or to um, take a more mundane example, leaky faucets are repaired. Is that a story of deliverance? Well, in a minimal way, I think it is. Any human triumph over opposition can be viewed as a kind of mini-deliverance. It is easy on our secular environment to adopt the framework of the secular historian or secular literary theorist and to pull the biblical stories of redemption down to the level of all other stories, whether true or imaginary. We read the stories in the Bible within a framework formed by the general stories that developed our reading skills. According to this view, it is all a product of socialization. This kind of historical framework tells us, because it already assumes, that all deliverances take place by merely imminent causation, and that the common pattern of redemptive meaning is only an incidental byproduct of causal processes from which God is absent. Now, that's the key point. It's not what I'm saying, obviously, but what an atmosphere observe, uh, absorbed too easily from secular studies. If the mention of God happens to be imported into a story, it is merely an extra ideological addition to a situation from which God is essentially absent. But interpretation of this kind has plausibility only because it is injected at the beginning the assumptions of fallen human thinking with which it ends. We can turn the whole picture topsy-turvy. We do not have to deny the reality of general revelation or the reality of the influence of general stories on our interpretive skills. We simply see all such stories as fitting according to God's wisdom into his plan for our lives. The general stories have an affinity to biblical stories because every story everywhere is a variation on God's big story of redemption. People cannot escape God even when they rebel against him, because they cannot avoid 
cannot avoid knowing God, Romans 1, they know that all is not well. And if all is not well, they long for a remedy. That is, they long for redemption. But because of the perversity of the fallen human heart, the longing can take strange perverted forms. The story of redemption can uh, include, the stories of redemption include counterfeit stories of counterfeit redemptions. Such are the mythologies of non-Christian cultures. The result is that interpretation of the healing of the leper is a spiral. We use our general knowledge of stories to interpret this one story, but this one story offers us, from God's mouth, a gospel announcement, the announcement of a small deliverance foreshadowing the great deliverance of the cross. When we hear the message of the cross and hear with faith, we are transformed. And then we begin to understand the stories of mini-redemption differently. We are enabled to see in the healing of the leper a type of the healing in the cross. Jesus touches the leper and thereby identifies with the uncleanness, which symbolizes the uncleanness of sin. Jesus' identification with uncleanness foreshadows and anticipates his identification with our sin in his sin-bearing on the cross. And the healing of the leper anticipates the healing of the resurrection, which promises ultimately the resurrection of our bodies and the final deliverance from every kind of bodily dysfunction. So, once we understand the deliverance and healing on the cross, we see the healing of the leper in the light of Jesus' work on the cross. And then it is a further step to see the multitude of other many stories of redemption in the Bible in the same light. And then we see extra biblical stories in the same light. Extra biblical stories do not have divine authority. They can offer distorted redemptions or counterfeit redemptions. But even in such cases, they are dependent in a sense for their meaning on the one true redemption. So our interpretation of Luke 5, 12 to 16 has the potential to affect our interpretation of every other story. The one central story of redemption results in reinterpretation of all the other stories. Redemption is comprehensive, and if it is comprehensive, it includes redemption of our minds, and so it includes redemption of what we think about stories. We can become more explicit. So, in effect, I'm saying there's this cycle, right? Your knowledge of stories in general feeds into how you read, instinctively read any story in the Bible, but vice versa. And it's that vice versa element that I think we're in danger of uh, neglecting. We can become more explicit about the way in which stories in general show analogies in this, to the central story of redemption. The final context for human action is God's action. God has a story, quote, unquote, namely world history. God has purposes for the beginning, and these are executed in time. At the center of world history, God has the climactic story of redemption brought about in the life of Christ. Because human beings are made in the image of God, they have purposes, and they endeavor to bring about those purposes in time. So human stories are naturally analogous to God's world history. Human stories represent within language the nature of human action. 
God's story has a beginning, a middle, and an end. In the beginning, God created the world. Shortly after the beginning of the human race, the fall disrupted the original harmony. God then acts in the middle of history to redeem human beings. The end comes with the consummation, the new heaven and the new earth, Revelation 21.1. God's actions exceed what human beings can do, and yet there is st- there are still similarities. We may relabel God's history as a story consisting in commission, work and reward using these more general this more general labeling we can see similarities with human actions human beings imit, imitate god's purposes on smaller scales purposeful human action has an action plan of sorts it has purposes it also involves a concrete action and its result and that's the first diagram for those i hope the the has the Please, oh, it ought to have been passed out long ago. I'm sorry. Uh, the first diagram that's labeled plot on this um, uh, it, uh, summarizes this whole idea of having an action plan leading to a result. This pattern occurs both in real act, human actions in history and in fictional stories. Story plots... As accounts of human action, therefore, often show similar features. Stories may begin with a normal situation, but a problem or a disruption soon surfaces. Let me illustrate with a generic form of fairy tale. Before that, I should say this plot structure, the purpose at the beginning, the leper initiates the purpose. I want to be healed, right? And by the end, he's healed. Very simple. Now I'm going to illustrate with a fairy tale. Once upon a time, there was a good and faithful king who had a lovely daughter, the princess. But one day, the princess was kidnapped by a dragon. The kidnapping represents, then, a disruption of the normal situation. The disruption already suggests a task to undertake to remedy the disruption. The remedy will be a small-scale analog of redemption. The princess must be rescued. That is the action plan. That is the purpose. So that dominates the whole story. The introduction of tension and the resolution of tension lead to the possibility of drawing a plot of the tension at each point in the narrative. The tension goes up when the difficulties increase. The tension goes down when the difficulties are resolved. The resulting plot has the shape consisting of a hump in the middle and the valleys at the two ends. It is what has been called the bell curve for plotting tension in a narrative. The tension is introduced, rises to a climax, and then falls during the resolution and the period of reward or failure in a tragic plot. And that's the second diagram, the diagram of tension. And uh, John Beekman, building on the observations of many literary analysts, has based on the experience with multiple languages, has produced a set of labels for the various main elements in a narrative episode, which are tied to the rise and fall of tension. And they're listed in the third diagram, plot elements. I won't go into the detail of that, but let's work it out with the story of the healing of the leper. So if I take the story here in Luke uh, 5, uh, 
While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and besought him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. While the while he was in the one city, one of the cities is, is the setting. OK, but then this is already the occasioning incident. If you will, you can make me clean. That's the tension. Right. That's the point of what's going to happen. Right. And he stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. That's the climax. Now, you as a believer know what's going to happen next because you know that Jesus has authority. But if you're sitting, as it were, inside the story, as particularly in the early part of the Gospels, if you're one of the people observing, this is the climax because if nothing happens, Jesus is discredited. I mean, this is a point of real tension. What is going to happen? Will the man be healed? So uh, then, and immediately the leprosy left him. That's the resolution. There was actually an additional incident then in the next verses where the leper is charged to go and show himself to the priests. But that's uh, how that, uh, that uh, operates. The plot can be elaborated by the introduction of participants who execute particular phases in the plot. The king offers a reward for the rescue of the princess. This step is the beginning of the commissioning, because the king, in effect, is challenging anybody who will to go out and perform this task. The hero steps forward and may be formally commissioned to execute the plan. The hero then goes out in the work phase of the plot. He may meet with various obstacles. There may be subplots, important point, in which he confronts obstacles along the way and overcomes them. The road is long. Finally, he confronts the dragon, the villain. The dragon, it may be noted, is the small-scale stand-in for the opponent of God's plan, namely Satan. Are we right in thinking so? Remember that man made in the image of God inevitably imitates God's action. So, yes, it makes sense that stories about human action, particularly redemptive stories in the sense of their triumphing over uh, situations of tension. Redemptive uh, human action shows analogies to the big story, the macro story concerning God's action. But let us continue with our small made up story, of the hero and the dragon. The hero defeats the dragon. That is the end of the work phase. The hero then returns with the princess. The king rewards the hero by offering the princess in marriage. This is the blessing phase or reward and is an offer of communion with the source of blessing, the king, and subordinately with the princess. The princess, lest it be noted, is the small-scale stand-in for the church, the bride of Christ, who is one part of the reward for Christ's accomplishment of his work. The macrocosmic hero is Christ, for which the fairy tale hero is a small-scale stand-in. In this stereotype story, there are certain important character roles. The hero, the villain, the sought-for person or object, in this case the princess, the commissioner, the king, and the reward giver, the king again. In this case, the commissioner, the king, is the same person as the rewarder. So it is with a macrocosmic story with God the Father as commissioner and rewarder. But the roles are distinguishable, and so in some human stories, the roles may be occupied by distinct human beings. There may also be stories where there is confusion. The person who appears to be the hero or sometimes the person who is the hero's helper turns traitor and must be replaced by another. In the story of the gospel, Judas is a traitor 
And in certain respects, Adam became a traitor. There may also be subplots. In one subplot, a person who seems at first to be an opponent or minor villain turns out to be a helper. There is a history to 20th century analysis of such stories. In 1928, Vladimir Propp published Morphology of the Folktale in Russian. It was translated into English in 1958 and a second edition dated 1968. On the basis of analysis of a corpus of about 100 Russian folktales, Prop found a regular structure both in the plot and in the roles of the characters. Prop found eight roles, namely the villain, the donor who gives the hero a helpful object, the helper who helps the hero on his quest, the princess, more generally the sought-for person, her father, more generally the rewarder or punisher or tester, the dispatcher who sends the hero on his quest, the hero, and the false hero. In his analysis, Prop did not find a consistent distinction between the functions of the princess and her father. If those two roles are wrapped together, there are only seven distinct roles. Vladimir Prop only applied his analysis to one corpus of Russian folk tales. He never claimed that it could be generalized. But Algirdas J. Grimard, in 1966, undertook to generalize the approach so that it would apply to narratives from many sources. Grimard compared Prop's work with an analysis of dramatistic roles by Etienne Surio. In synthesizing both of them, Grimard recognized complexities but settled on a set of six roles that he claimed could usefully categorize, quote, mythological manifestations only. The roles, which he termed actantial categories, are sender, object, receiver, helper, subject, and opponent. And that's the next diagram on the other side of the uh, page. Uh, and some of you have probably seen this because it has gotten into uh, biblical studies, particularly through uh, by way of structuralism. And Grimard can be classified in some respects as a structuralist. The subject is a generalization based on Vladimir Prop's hero. The opponent covers both Prop's villain and Prop's false hero. The object corresponds to Prop's princess or sought-for person. The receiver is Prop's hero in his role of receiving the princess as bride. The sender includes Prop's dispatcher and the princess's father in his role of giving the princess. Clema's approach differs from Prop. Prop attempted to develop insider categories that would match the perceptions of tellers and hearers of the specific body of Russian folklore. Rima, on the other hand, was obviously striving for a general set of categories that would work cross-culturally. He necessarily offered an outsider set of categories, that is, classifiers categories that would work across multiple cultures. More than one set of categories might prove to have some use. Why then this specific set? Rema's own explanation in his book does not go very far. I think you'll find it very disappointing and, and rather unmotivated. He has obviously melded together a set of seven or eight roles from Prop and six roles from Suryo, but other roles could be imagined. We can find some clearer motivation for Grima's selection by returning to the nature of man as prophet, king, and priest. 
Human action includes verbal action and thinking action corresponding, this is a generalization then, out of the prophetic role, action in power, generalization of the kingly role, and action in sanction, that is blessing and reward, curse and punishment, corresponding to the priest. In many stories, the beginning presents a challenge. In the middle, the challenge is worked through in a test. And in the end, there is a recompense, reward or punishment. These three phases correspond to to some extent, to the three offices, prophet, king, and priest. The prophet's role in speaking corresponds to the challenge. The king's role in exercising power corresponds to the test. And the priest's role in blessing corresponds to the recompense. In talking this way, I'm using the terms prophet, king, and priest in a very general way. The terms are describing activities in which ordinary human beings engage because human beings are made in the image of God. But the use of the terms in the Bible is much narrower and more special. In the Bible, prophet, king, and priest designate special offices that God appointed for redemptive purposes and imply special authority that goes with the office. It is important to appreciate their unique role. At the same time, it is possible to see analogies between the special offices and human actions in general. The same goes when we compare the historical accounts in the Bible with stories outside the Bible. The events reported in the Bible really happened, and the reports in the Bible have a special role because God instructs us concerning events related to his redemptive plan. Even uh, these events have key unrepeatable roles in God's purpose for the world. But because these events are key events brought about by God, they are likely to be imitated by human beings in many other circumstances because human beings are made in the image of God. So the uniqueness of what is recorded in the Bible is not in tension with the generalities that we can explore about stories all over the world. So I take, uh, and uh, I'm going to conclude at this point, I take Rima's categories, rework them a little bit, and you can see at the bottom of the page uh, some of that reworking in terms of the categories of roles of prophetic kingly and priestly uh, action and uh, and then uh, correlating that with various uh, roles like challenger and challengee, the speaker and the recipient of the challenge and so on. So I'm just going to uh, summarize it as follows. Any particular story has details that will not be captured by these very general categories. And I uh, might as well at this point this this skips uh, a few parts of in order to get to the conclusion. Uh, A story may have subplots or distinct episodes which show some of the features in miniature. A story may have an inconclusive ending or no ending at all. It's an interesting parable in Luke 13, 6 to 9 of the unfruitful uh, fig tree in the vineyard has no conclusion. If you look at it carefully, it doesn't even have a climax. The categories, and there's a purpose in that, the categories serve their purpose if they alert us to some commonalities that belong to many stories, commonalities both in plot and in the functions of the characters. I've chosen the categories, that is, as opposed to Rima's categories, in a way that also helps to underline the relation of human action to divine action. And that's part of the purpose here. We also see the relation between character roles and the role of Christ in the central acts of redemption. 
Christ is commissioned by the Father. He accomplishes redemption by undergoing testing in his life and in his death. He is rewarded in the resurrection. This pattern of redemption is then applied to each person who trusts in Christ. You know, the language of dying and rising with Christ, for example, in Romans 6, is one instance of many that concern application. We call it application of redemption, right? But that means that the redemptive story is recapitulated, as it were, as a mini story of your own personal story of your life. And that is essential to the uh, reality of being a saved. So it's recapitulated and it's applied to each person who trusts in Christ. The pattern is repeated as a mini redemption in the story of an individual life. So I've tried to leave the last 10 minutes so we can interact on this. Yes, Jim. So two questions. First one is, so what you're trying to do here is say not only we have God's grace coming to this poor lover, and the big story of the Bible is about grace. But you want to you want to get a little further down into the details than that. You want to say you want to call attention to the resurrection, new life, and so that. So if you were applying a sermon, it would it would, it would drift in the direction of either uh, you, know, you two can be made whole, or you can look forward to. Uh, um, yeah, the, the, the ending suggests the area of application of redemption. I think you're several steps ahead of me because I'm, I'm at a level of generality of just trying to contemplate what happens when we take over story theories, narrative theories out of the world. And there's an appropriateness to that, that it's an appropriateness that I believe should go the other way. Uh, very strongly as well, so that we reconfigure the whole theory of story in the light of redemption, that we understand what's so attractive about redemptive stories. I'm talking about the Russian folklore stories, right? Because it it's the hope of redemption, maybe sometimes in a counterfeit form. Now, I think you're dealing with something much more integral to to the preacher, right? And I believe that's right. And I think there's two levels in which I would um, I want to encourage people to think more. One is simply, yeah, the uh, the healing of the lepter is a, is a picture of grace, but grace comes in relationship to the mediation of Christ. And in fact, the leper is an outcast. He's as good as dead. You know, the the the, the disease is is uh, associated with uncleanness because I think it's a disorder of the body, which, you know, if left without uh, to, to take over would, would lead to death. So he's in a situation of death and of, of uh, also of alienation from his fellow man because he's unclean. And the healing is in effect the bodily, resur- uh, bodily restoration that anticipates the resurrection of the body. So I believe that that's accomplished in the death of resurrection of Christ. And when Christ lays his hand on the leper, that's one of the most striking things because it was a social faux pas from the standpoint no Jew would do that because it would make you unclean. Well, I don't think Christ literally becomes unclean, but there's an identification with uncleanness that anticipates, I believe, his sin bearing. 
So it's there's much more integral relation even within the Gospels. But then I also want to affirm what I think you're getting at is in terms of application, you are the leper, right, who says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean of sin so that it does have that application. But you moved in with stories. Is I kept I kept having flashbacks to uh, C.S. Lewis asking where the where the truest stories were, and Tolkien said <coughs> tales. Where he argues that all of the all of the good stories are about the the good stories. Yeah, well, I'm not sure I have a footnote of Tolkien, but this is part of a larger. It's a book manuscript, and I do footnote Tolkien, who talks. Where is it? It's uh, it's in a certain essay. He talks about you catastrophe. Thanks. All right, on fairy story. Yeah, fitting. <laughs> okay. Yes. So I wonder how this relates to suspicion of meta narrative. I suppose the two ways we look at that are to say, I'm saying is that big story meta narrative, and all of the stories. In scripture and yeah. Yeah. Um, well, the other way to, to approach that, perhaps, really, to, to say, okay, your little story that you're talking about, no one can quite fix it. Actually, I can talk to you about your little story. Let's say, 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 Yeah, that's that's a very interesting observation because I think to people who are allergic to meta narrative, it may be well to start just with literal stories, and there's no reason why a Christian can't do that. I, I think I would have a comment on the meta narrative level, and that would be that the reaction to the suspicion against all meta-narratives is partly unfounded and it's partly well-founded because counterfeit meta-narratives such as took hold of Nazi Germany, for instance, or terrorist version of Islam have enormous destructive power because they grip people and convince them that they are part of a magnificent redemptive story and it's all counterfeit. And so enormous damage is done. And I want to side with the people who say, who are fearing that and say, absolutely. And even the Christian narrative can be perverted by hypocrisy and, and misuse and people who are grabbing for power by manipulating that story for their own benefit. But that's because it's a counterfeit. You know, it's so powerful precisely because it's the counterfeit and the glory of the Christian story is the glory of triumph and weakness. Now, it's exactly the thing that overthrows, I believe, the sort of power-grabbing aspect that people fear, is that Christ dies in weakness, and there's an enormous ability in that and in the application the Holy Spirit makes of that in our lives to overcome the lust for power. It's precisely the message that this fear of meta narrative needs to hear. Abuse of the meta narrative does not mean that there's not a proper use of the meta narrative. <laughs> I, I, that went too fast for me. Abuse, abuse, <laughs> abuse, abuse right. of something doesn't mean that there's not a proper use. Right. 
Exactly. And the other thing about the Christian meta narrative is that nobody except God controls it. Right. That it is surpasses us in its richness and magnitude so that we're sitting under it rather than, you know, if we're if we're proper disciples of Christ, rather than using it to, you know, in this manipulative fashion to to uh, to propagandize people. Anybody else? Let's see how we're doing. Oh, we're out of time. So I'll be around for a few minutes. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out the full Vern Poitras collection now available on Canon Plus. Plus.